Fairy tales were never intended to tell little girls to sit quiet and shut up. They were told to help them learn how to scream and run. And <laughs> that's what I wanted to talk about because I think that we need these... I think we need these tales. I mean, the things that little girls have to be frightened of aren't wolves anymore, but there, there are still metaphor wolves. Yeah. They're not real anymore, but there are metaphor wolves. I recorded this episode earlier this year when I went on a trip to Oxford to record a few people that I know there. This was the third conversation that I'd recorded that day. I'd spent quite a lot of that day on my own as well, sort of walking around Oxford and not talking to anyone. So that... Combined with the fact that we were drinking cider, plus it turns out that me and Lucy, who I don't know very well, have quite a few things in common, led to this being quite a talkative episode for me. Sometimes the GBA experience goes that way and I talk a little bit more and sometimes I talk less. This is one of the ones where I, I talk quite a bit and a little bit excitedly. It was great seeing this kind of, this thing that doesn't really happen in prisons where everyone's quite, you know, closed off and seeing this kind of softening. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Lucy. Hello, Lucy. Hello. For anyone listening to this, which is everyone, I just did a little wave at the microphone. She did a wave. Not Hi. an audible one. But no. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> oh, wow. That is actually audible. Yeah. Impressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Well, that's uh, that's that. the introduction has completely thrown me with the audible wave. <laughs> so the first question that I ask is, how do you know me? Um, you know what? Uh, someone asked me that the other day and... I don't know. We must have. I we must have been to the same musical event. Were we formally introduced? I don't think so. I don't believe so. I don't believe we were ever formally introduced. But we have a lot of mutual friends. That, that's that's correct. If we were formally introduced, I would hazard that it was Hannah. Possibly or Haley. Or Haley. I mean, Probably ha- more likely to be Haley actually, yeah, isn't it? She's the person I knew from your group first, and then everybody right. came through her really. Yes, and we probably first met at an autumn shift. That's right. Thing. I certainly. I think I first saw you. I'm not sure if we met, but I saw you at an autumn shift event because I was thinking about this the other day yeah. for the same reason you were. <laughs> not quite um, sure. And I saw you doing poetry. I think at the autumn shift event near Liverpool Street Station. I think in. Oh East yes, the one in the pipeline. That's right. See, I think this is a good example of how nice things like Facebook and Twitter can be. Yeah. Because. I think I probably know you better now through those kinds of things. Yeah, I would imagine so, because um, we haven't really... I don't think we've ever... This would be the first time we've sat down, certainly together, and had a conversation. Definitely but I don't just think, the two of us. I'm not even sure. You know, maybe at parties we might have been in the same rooms talking in a kind of... Com- yeah, but I don't yeah. think we've ever had a direct conversation, which is no, quite in- interesting. I like, yeah. I like, uh, I like finding the the furthest reaches of acquaintanceship and yes. seeing what that's all about. <laughs> you must have friended me, I think, on Facebook, because I don't I don't friend I don't tend to friend people 
that I haven't had a conversation with. That's interesting. So I think you must have done. That's interesting because neither do I. Weird. Maybe somebody... Maybe maybe Hayley suggested us or... Can you suggest friends on Facebook? Yeah, you can. Okay. But it's not very frequent. I've never... I can't think of it. But maybe... I don't know. Well, that's very strange, isn't it? I don't really... But I do follow people on Twitter in a more haphazard way just because they're doing something interesting. Or I guess something that can happen is you kind of get into a conversation on somebody else's Facebook wall and then that might have got to a point where you were like, right, well, I've had a conversation with him now and then I should... Yeah, who knows? Who can say? I wonder if Facebook... Facebook probably knows, but I think Facebook probably wouldn't tell us Mm, who funded who. It's all going to be... Well, I I don't know. I haven't had this... It's it's, it's all rolling in, isn't it? This uh, timeline. Maybe that Mm. will will tell us. We can go down that and see our, our... past indiscretions and when we became friends. <laughs> I quite like it actually when it pops up on your newsfeed like so and so and so and so went to this event and now they're friends. I always kind of think like, you know, oh. Oh, that is nice, yeah. Quite sweet. Although yeah. someone once freaked me out at a party being like, oh, you and so and so, you have like the funniest wall to wall ever. One day I just sat down and read it like since 2008. I was like, <laughs> Really, mate? I mean, I knew it was public. I knew it was a public thread. And we also have a separate, secret, private message thread that we use to bitch about people. But I didn't expect anyone to sit down and read it like a blog, you know. But I guess it kind of is. It is weird like that. I mean, there are certain friends that I have really, really in-depth conversations with Mm. on Facebook, which are public conversations. Yes. And sometimes somebody you know will have been talking for two days it'll be paragraphs and paragraphs of conversation and then somebody will just chime in and yeah, i'll be like someone will chip huh? in and you're like somebody shut there? up yeah. <laughs> like, that's something that sometimes happens in in these getting better acquainted conversations really at the, at the end of the conversation i'll ask you to say goodbye to the audience and that's when people are like oh there's oh, a third right. person in this conversation <laughs> there's somebody who could hear this yeah yeah my dad is a radio broadcaster that's what he does for a living, so I, and I always used to go in with him when I was little girls. Obviously, the people are listening, they can't see me, but what Dad would always do when he does a radio show is he'd sit up, he'd always, like, wear a tie and shave and look really presentable, and he'd sit up at the desk and use hand movements and lean in. Oh, wow. And I was kind of, you know, when I was about ten, I was like, there's no-one there, Dad. And he's like, of course there is. Yeah, you, you know, do you have can't to keep the them, audience but, in mind, absolutely. Yeah, but he definitely believes that the audience can just tell somehow I think they about can. your body language. I think they definitely can. Whether you're kind of bearing them in mind. He's like, well, otherwise they'd just be reading words off a sheet. Yeah. And I want to be like, I'm having a conversation. You know, people are like driving or doing the ironing. They and he's talking directly talking to an to audience, yeah. Rather than someone talking to themselves. That's really interesting because, I mean, generally the format of this show is that people are kind of almost eavesdropping mm. but I do do kind of specials where I've gone I've done ones where I've gone back to places I've lived I've done one going back to Cardiff and one going back to Coventry I decided to sort of do it in action so I was sort of sitting in a National Express coach with that microphone talking to an audience you know with an or trying to have an audience yeah. in mind but trying to not look like a crazy mm. person I guess See, it's, um, <laughs> I it's interesting it, the kind of whole Internet's interesting like that. I write a blog, which is always slightly... I mean, I always write it very much in the tone of an email to a close friend. Mm. Something that I don't... I mean, obviously, I read it with a kind of clearer eye just to make sure I haven't accidentally said something 
horribly personal, but I try and get that atmosphere. Lucy in the sky. sky Lucy in the si- pub with cider. Pub with cider. Hilarious you, Beatles reference. I knew we were getting to cider, but I forgot the pub. Yeah, but it's, as, yeah, it's better <laughs> in the pub with cider. That's good because I read that. Oh, great! Yeah, it's um, it slipped a little bit. Actually, I mean, it slipped because I I kind of stopped blogging when I broke up with my then boyfriend because suddenly I was like, oh god, all I've got to talk about is stuff that actually is a bit too personal yeah and um, you don't want to do it when it's raw you don't well. want to do it when it's raw and you don't want to say anything Especially you don't want to say anything they'll be read they'll read it um, you won't agree with it in the future yeah and you know you don't you that. don't want to be you don't want to be hurtful and also you know I'm, I'm 26 i'm not 16 yeah and i don't you know i'm not going to kind of splash things over the internet but even kind of bearing that in mind i wrote a blog post about weight issues which was very personal yeah. i was really 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 glad i did it and i was really pleased with a lot of the response that i got from that i was surprised by the range of response i got from men so I was writing it very much from a woman's point of view and like, this is what society does to women. I think a lot of this is to do with the fact I went to an all-girls school, this kind of thing. But most of the Facebook responses I got were from men saying, you know, like sharing their own stories, um, yeah. wanting to talk about these kinds of issues. Well, I think men do have quite a lot of weight yeah. issues. Not as many, I don't think. I mean, I actually come from Yorkshire, it's quick. I wouldn't say it was kind of an overly macho culture, but there's a... Yeah different feeling around masculinity and then there is in the south but recently i have three close friends all of whom are quite big guys and all of whom lost really considerable amounts of weight like in the region of like between sort of four and six stone like a lot and it's it's really nice like one of them sort of updates his facebook and he's like just been to weight watchers lost 50 pounds back of the net and i was just like oh i wish i could put that as my facebook update like something that clean about weight just Why like can't you? i had this problem oh well in the context of losing weight particularly i have always felt like it was pushed on me that losing weight was always an unarguably a positive and i resist that Mm -hmm. I think that what was never very clear to me and my understanding of weight when I was younger and what I think is not clear on a cultural level is the idea of goal weight rather than just the skinnier you are the better a person you are yes I I think there's more of a taboo about women revealing how much they weigh and I don't know why that is that's kind of maybe it's kind of it because it's all mixed up in the fact that it kind of puts pressure on everybody else. I think that there is definitely yeah. this weird thing. Like, I was talking to my girlfriend about this just the other day because it, um, somebody that we both know had lost weight and was had been talking to my girlfriend about losing weight, and I was and I was saying, well, doesn't that doesn't that make you know make you fit feel like it's a competition? You know, mm. when people are talking about how much weight they've lost and 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 and. I think that, that there is that kind of sense about weight loss that if you say you're losing weight, you're kind of telling everybody else they should be losing weight. Yeah, kind of, and particularly when you bring an actual weight into it. And I, I, I kind of resist the actual kind of stones and pounds thing. Yeah. I mean, just partly partly on a kind of basic 16-year-old, meh, it's not fair level, um, just because I'm like five foot eight and a half, so, um, you know, I'm never I'm never going to be nine stone. But there's, there's different, no point. there's different ways that oh, people's bodies are as absolutely, well. I mean, th- that absolutely. is really the big problem. Absolutely. Um, and I 
I, I don't know, I'm always very conflicted about weight actually because I absolutely resist the kind of notion of little, petite, fragile woman thing. I also resist the notion that you have to, you know, try so hard in the same way that I'd be very very cross if anyone suggested that I kind of had like had to wear makeup yeah. when I didn't want to it always made me very very angry the idea that I had to wear heels for work when I still worked in that kind of environment I was like why I don't want to like trot around like a pony on my tippy toes all day this is stupid Absolutely. like I look it's, smart but it's I unacceptable look... in this day and age to have any kind of suggestion yeah. that women need to wear things that make them unable to run away completely completely <laughs> I mean, they can, unacceptable they, you know. I mean you can wear smart you can I think you can insist on smart shoes smart clothing but I you don't really that, see yeah. why that can't I think that there always has to be a caveat that that can mean flat shoes and trousers I think that that's ridiculous so I kind of resist the weight thing on that level but it's conflicted and I'm not a big fan of health at every size which is quite a Kind of, among my group of friends is almost just quite a controversial thing to say because it's quite accepted. What's that? Health at Every Size is a movement, and they do do some good work, which basically rejects the notion of a kind of like the NHS being able to step in and be like, you're obese, you're too fat. Um, it's very much focused on what's healthy for you, what your body can do. There's a lot of kind of upset that if your BMI is over 30, then you're obese, and that means there are all these health consequences around the corner, and how dare you say to me that I'll get diabetes if I'm too heavy. And in a certain way, there's there's a point, a really valid point, because um, it's undeniably true that just because you're fat doesn't necessarily make you automatically healthier than the thin person. That's clearly not true. On the other hand, I find all this kind of suspicion of the medical profession, and particularly the NHS, I just find it quite... I don't really get it. I don't really understand why you'd think that there was some kind of GP conspiracy. In my experience, medical professionals within the NHS really, really do want what's best for you. They might be, they might be under too much of a workload, to give you the time that you need that can happen they might not understand exactly what you want miscommunication can happen too but in my experience I've never kind of come across someone who a healthcare professional who I thought was in any way trying to oppress me right, okay. uh, maybe that's my privilege but I don't know why you'd ignore such a massive raft of studies yeah, I'm interested in being there, as healthy as there possible there is definitely without a doubt a health issue if you are overweight and we are in a society where we have we're, we're designed to eat as much food as possible because we don't know where the next meal is coming Absolutely. from and we do know where the next meal is coming from so yeah. we have to try and get Absolutely. get over those and like battle with those instincts yeah. it, that is why everybody's i mean and i have it myself we all i think we all have it of of, of just having to to, to try and convince our instincts that it's okay you yeah. know relax chill out we're meal, not in an ice coming, age yeah exactly exactly yeah. yeah i agree with a lot of the points that health at every size raises one of which is by dieting you're kind of demonstrating to your body that actually no you really are in an ice age and that i think i agree with i think that there should be a lot of emphasis on not not kind of deprivation and punishing and yeah that's true yeah weight can be i think a lot 
a lot about punishing. Well, punishment leads to rejecting the punishment. If you're punished, Absolutely. then you will binge. Absolutely. I mean, that's where you get into that kind of mm. circle. So the second question that I ask people, <laughs> Sorry, that is fine. About half an hour. I, I, lo I love it when it goes off uh, <laughs> like a roller coaster and I don't know where it's going to go next. But the second question I ask people is, what do you do now? What do I do now? That's an interesting and lovely question. About a year and a half ago, I really kind of changed up my professional life a lot and I'm still really, really happy. I am trying to become, I am a poet and writer. I'm working on an hour-long show, spoken word show for the Edinburgh Festival. At the moment, I'm also working on a novel. I work four days a week for a small charity that does yoga with prisoners as well as their PR officer. Um, and I really love both of them and I love working part-time. It's brilliant. Working four days a week is brilliant. Yeah, I do that too, so yeah. I, can, I can agree. It's brilliant. Great. It's so, it's so worth... I mean, I say, I say that from a position of not struggling, but We're I, lucky to do it, but we're anyone really who can lucky to do, do it, it Really should. lucky to do it. And, yeah. I mean, obviously I could earn more if I work five days a week. Like, duh. But I absolutely love working four days a week I think it's so yeah. it goes so that kind of like respect and the way that your my kind of work is giving me this sort of tangible respect of like we know you've got stuff to do we only need you for four days so there's no reason and I like I mean particularly because it's a charity I like that they're that careful with funds that they've worked out exactly how much they need someone for my role and they're like this is this is it you know we're not we're not that's very yeah that's that is very intelligent management as yeah. well yeah yeah and, and, and it's, it sounds like a, a kind of really interesting thing, yoga with prisoners. I yes, mean. yoga and meditation with prisoners, um, the Prison Phoenix Trust. I applied about, it was pretty much two years ago now actually, and I had no idea what the criminal justice system was like. I'd never come into contact with it, I'd never been to a prison. I don't think I knew anyone who'd been to prison. It was completely out of my world. I had done one yoga class at the time at Centre Parks when I was 16 and I hadn't enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> but I was looking for work and what I really wanted, I was working in a kind of insurancey, horrible, very conventional marketing job. And I felt like I wasn't really helping things, you know, in a more, in a sort of general way. I wasn't, I felt like at the end of the day, I hadn't made the world a better place. I'd maybe made it a little bit, a little tiny bit worse. Like not to over dramatize it, like it wasn't a sort of seal clubbing emporium. <laughs> it, well, you know, it just didn't. I, yeah. I felt like I wanted to do something positive, and I was like, okay, well, this is a charity, and you have the skills it wants, and it's PR, and I just there's something about the advert that I just thought was kind of charming. And then they sent me the job description, and you know, there are a lot of things that I had. In, I had everything in the essential column. In the desirable column, one of them was be a yoga teacher. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> you know, I could never I have a snowball in hell's chance. And under the essential characteristics column was a sense of inner calm. I was like, oh God, you know, <laughs> I really want to work for someone who puts a sense of inner calm. As an as a as essential, essential, essential. essential personality wow. characteristic of the job who gives that equal weighting to being able to write a press release for a PR position. I want to work there. So I went to the interview. It was just really nice. I felt like they weren't trying to trip me up. I kind of left it and phoned my dad as you do. And he was like, how were they then? Was it weird? And I was like, no, I really, 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 really want it. I was kind of like, well, I, I won't get it because I'm not a yoga teacher. The whole thing was silly. I'll go back to applying at 
the uh, OUP, I, was, I applied to the Oxford University Press kind of in the region of 20 times while I was job hunting. I got, <laughs> got about 10 interviews. It was awful. Anyway, so I was like, I'll never get it. And Sam, my current boss, phoned up and left the longest voicemail ever. And it kind of, <laughs> and it was like, oh, hi, Lucy. Uh, it's really nice to meet you the other day. Really, really nice. We all enjoyed it. It was a lovely afternoon. I hope that you're well today. And I was like, just say it, just say it, just say just say it, just say it. I was so convinced he was just going to be like, anyway, thanks and all, but bye. And he was like, so, uh, because we enjoyed meeting you so much, we wanted to offer you the job. <laughs> I was in horrible Didcot Parkway railway station. I was working there at a the time. I was just like, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I started going into prisons. I started doing yoga. I love yoga. I'm thinking about training to be a teacher now, actually. It's been a real gift. And um, it's interesting, we were kind of talking about weight. It's the only thing that I've found, and I'm sure it's not the only thing out there, the only thing that I've found that's made me start feeling comfortable in my own skin again as an adult has been yoga. It's really gone a long way to helping me make friends with myself again. I kind of in a sort of physical way and just being like this is my body and it's not perfect no one's body's perfect but you know what I can do this cool ass arm balance look at this woo I can stand I can do a handstand I can still do a handstand brilliant you're on, you're on the same side as your body yeah you're yeah. not against each other yeah that's we're great. on we're on the same team and that's been brilliant and from from a health point of view like everyone everyone that works vegetarian and all about the homegrown lentil which has been <laughs> it's been really it's been really good it's just so yeah it's a it's a really positive environment so how does that homegrown lentil kind of positive mental attitude sort of mm. thing how does that mix with prisoners oh it's lovely actually the first time the first time mm. i saw it the first time i went into prisons i mean like I've, obviously i was nervous it's, you know, it's prison yeah it's scary and i'm not gonna lie like every time i go in is it a male I always prison? yeah i've actually never been to a female prison there, just, mm. there aren't very many there at aren't. all although i mean i've been doing some work with women prisoners i really like i really like to we're bringing out a leaflet to do prenatal yoga in prison because there are 600 women pregnant in prison every year and I didn't know that no. and it's something that's so often offered in the community prenatal yoga but it's like it that's, indeed, that's an yeah. aside it was a male prison I first went into it. and it is you know it's it's intimidating there's this big slimy gate and you know you don't really know what to do and it's a little bit first day at school because you know they're in their institutions like schools Are you, do you have to be searched and stuff to go in yeah, I was at an airport recently and they were like, oh my gosh, I'm really sorry, the alarms have gone off and we're going to have to frisk you. And it's just become it's just really like quite annoying. Yeah. This is yeah. how, how I start and end my day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't go in that often, but it's amazing how quickly you get used to it. It's all done in a very friendly way. It's not, you do get searched because you have to be, but it's not, uh, it's never been done with like any element of suspicion. Yeah. If you know what I mean, it's always... It's just part of the job. Yeah, and, it's just part you know, of the you're job. You're both professionals um, and this is what yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the prison officers I've worked with, you know, I mean, sometimes they just get on with it. Sometimes they're a massive laugh, like everyone, but it's always been very, very, like, very, very professional. From the prisoners as well, I've always felt like everyone in that environment has respected that I'm in there 
to do a job to do a specific thing and even if they haven't thought very much of yoga sometimes you know sometimes people think it's a bit weird sometimes people often people think it's for girls to get that a lot a lot but what I always say when someone says that is that yoga was actually introduced to the UK by the British Army who picked it up in India and made it part of basic training back in kind of the 20s mm. it was great seeing this kind of this thing that doesn't really happen in prisons where everyone's quite you know closed off and seeing this kind of softening mm. and just sit together and I've I've always like consistently found it a really really positive experience I've always really loved working with the guys I don't think I've ever been in a class I mean I don't teach but I'm kind of there and kicking about because I'm not qualified um, now you're talking about it as well I mean it seems to me actually I mean although it might when people hear the idea of yoga and prisoners together mm. it might seem a strange fit the space of inside a prison is only about in your cell is only about right for something like yoga yeah. you can't do something you, you can't run you know run yeah. or, or any other kind of exercise yeah, particularly exactly. in that space yeah. exactly i mean you'll get you'll get some access to the gym yeah, um course, but no. i mean yeah it's, it's perfect because i mean a yoga mat is only it's only kind of the space that you take up just lying on the floor almost everything can be done and we certainly we we design our books so that it takes up kind of as little space as possible and we offer modifications for if you can't, you know, if you can't stretch your arms out all the way, that's okay, just, you know, bend one of them up a bit, it doesn't really matter. And the idea came out of back in the 80s, like the trust is about the same age as me, um, which I always <laughs> find quite pleasing. So back in the mid 80s, it came out of the idea, it used to be called the Prison Ashram Project, it came out of the idea that monks and nuns live in a space called a cell as well. And oh, they, yeah, and that kind of like loss of freedom and pairing back down to only things that are absolutely considered necessary for survival that's what monks and nuns do mm. so there might be a kind of synergy between these two you know these two states um yeah. it's a really really interesting really interesting story of um the founding of the trust and we're really lucky that a lot of the people who were involved then are still around and still giving their feedback and from a kind of you know if you're interested in charities at all it's amazing to be able to watch these people who've charted the growth of an organisation from that used to be literally writing letters about meditation on a kitchen table and sending mm. them off to prison, so, you know, taking them down to Wolvercut Post Office or whatever, and watching that grow into a modern charity and how that's happened is really interesting. So it hasn't lost that kind of personal touch, you know. I, all of our trustees know who I am and they know stuff about me and I love that and all of our volunteers and a lot of our supporters and there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of affection around that we still write we write personal thank you letters for every donation you know that's nice yeah I really I didn't know that wasn't kind of standard practice in charities but apparently apparently it's not but we do it and I I really love that I think it, it fosters that kind of and the prisoners yeah, and everybody absolutely that's really nice it's a really yeah. nice kind of environment to be working in uh yeah. although I'm, I'm sure it must be challenging at times as well there are, i mean there are challenging elements prisons by necessity have a lot of security structures it's lovely work actually and everyone's always like do you go into prisons do you meet I'm like I don't know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> don't ask. You, know, yeah, you don't, don't, you don't walk up to someone and ask them what yeah. the worst thing they've, they've ever done. done is. I'd hate it if someone did that to me. You must think about it, though. 
I really prefer not to know. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I can understand why you would prefer not to yeah, know. Yeah, I think because I've done so much kind of thinking around... Around and when I when I was you know thinking about the job as well and even even started when I prepared for the interview I was like what do I think about crime and punishment because I've never had to think about this before I yeah. don't I don't really know what I think about crime and punishment I don't know what I think about prison and I did a kind of a lot of thinking around that and what prisons for and punishment's an element and protection of the public is a very very important element but I think that rehabilitation is also an incredibly I think it's the most important element Yeah. for me. Oh, um, I, would, I would agree with that. But that, Yeah, I mean, a surprising amount of people don't. And when you start talking, uh, people, you yeah. say you do yoga in prisons and some people immediately get it. And people you've never, you know, people you've never spoken to, to about yoga who you, you had no idea. And people will like pop up and be like, oh yeah, I did a Bikram class, it changed my life. And you're like, really? Ah, I didn't know that about you. That's amazing. But some people really hate it. I had a really extreme reaction from a former colleague from my last job who just went, oh, I completely disagree with that. I was like, I don't, I don't really understand. People think of it, I guess, as rewarding them, do they? I think so. I think so. Um, but I, I'd maybe suggest that these people have never actually been to a yoga class because it's yeah. actually quite difficult. It's not, it's, it's, not, it's, it's a strange reward to give to somebody as well. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that I'm, I imagine that the uh, prisoners would have ever considered. It's not on the list. Yeah. Um, it's not like, They'll what would you like from your prison like, set? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. They'd much prefer a Sky TV, which they don't have, which everyone thinks they do. Um, <laughs> yeah, all prisoners have Sky TV yeah, exactly. and I mean, Xboxes. I know. <laughs> I mean, my view on the criminal justice system is mm. quite complex, but rehabilitation is the only point I see yes. in prisons. Like, everybody deserves to be rehabilitated. I would prefer prisons to be more geared towards rehabilitation than they are and certainly if we think that the people who go into prisons are not people if they are somehow different from us we are vastly mistaken and the line is a paper thin i mean what i what i often ask people socially if they're a little bit like "Mm, oh but what about working with these terrible terrible people and i often say have you ever stolen anything Mm. and i've only ever had two people who've told me that they've never stolen anything. Yeah. But I, I ask that a lot. And also people think, you know, things like driving offences don't count. And it's like, can you not see how you... In fact... De- they definitely do. It only takes you to be doing a very common driving offence, like texting when driving or whatever, yeah. or having too many drinks, for you to kill someone. Yes. Uh, and then you'll be in prison with a very different kind of... Uh, exactly. ...sentence than you would have done if you'd exactly. have just been caught texting, you know. Absolutely, exactly. And I mean, I also think it's this false idea of what prisons are like and who prisoners are. The incidents of mental health in prison, the incidents of addiction in prison are so sky high. And I, I could make a, I I just, I can't imagine a world in which I would, in which, or rather I can't, I don't understand how anyone can hand on heart say, I'm never going to make a stupid mistake. Because, you know, you make stupid mistakes and things snowball, particularly, you know, particularly with drugs. And it's easy to do. And, yeah, I just think, you know, it's not it's not it's not a different country. And working in prisons, the most frightening thing about working in prisons is seeing 
how very, very fine the line is. Because, I mean, I'd never really thought about it before, but before I started, I had always kind of assumed, without questioning this at all, that, you know, that was something that would never happen to me because, you know, I kind of wasn't that kind of person. person. And I thought that from, you know, obviously I thought that from a liberal left-wing point of view, but it just made me realise that's that's just completely untrue. In a weird way, working in a prison means that you know that you're working with people who are criminals. Mm. Whereas working in any other other workplace means that you don't know if the people you're working with are criminals or not because they may not have been caught. Yeah, Um. absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. That's the Um, weird thing about it all. People kind of talk about like fear of violence and stuff. I've I've never felt afraid in a prison because prison prisons are very very safe like they're, they're completely designed to start you know for, from a visitor point of view yeah. you know they're completely designed for stuff they, to not kick well, off you going in is they're going to definitely make sure that you're yeah. safe if you're when you're going yeah, in from outside always. as a charity absolutely yeah. would be irresponsible and foolish of them not yeah. to so before I get on to the last topic which I think will go on into the final questions as well <laughs> before that I just like to sort of touch on something I think is kind of interesting about our separate life paths because you went to university in Warwick is that yes. right? the Warwick University I went to Warwick University which is as falls fresh as every year actually in Coventry yeah um, I knew I considered going to Warwick but I have lived in Coventry between the ages of eight and eleven and decided against it. Which area of Coventry did you live? I lived in Ernstford Grange but my dad lived in Stoke Aldermore. Student Coventry, if you're a Warwick student, is quite a small geographical location so I lived in Elston. Elston, okay. Which is where Catbin Lady that sounds about right. Doing her thing. Elston's quite a posh area. Yeah, it's fairly. It, it's um, it's the kind of like oh, charming community primary school. The housing's scruffy, but there's an organic deli on the high street. It's that right, kind of area. Okay. It's, it's really student. Also, you're from Yorkshire. Yes. My girlfriend is from York, and I oh. went to university in Lancaster. So, oh, my I've... dad and my best friend from school both went to university in Lancaster. Oh, interesting. Not at the same time, obviously. No, they would. Many years apart. But yeah, I spent a lot of time in Lancaster. You have a really close family friend in Lancaster as well, so I spent a lot of time so there. Did you grow up in Yorkshire, like, all your life? Or? Yes. I used to live in a village called Home Pond Spalding Moor. And then we moved to a small town called Beverly, but they're both in North East mm. Yorkshire. So yeah, I was there till I moved to Coventry and from there to Oxford. Lived in Leamington Spa for a year. My friend's grandparents were in Leamington Spa and I occasionally went there. Yeah, it's a slightly weird place, colonised mm-hmm. by students. I preferred Coventry, which is not, a, that's not the normal Warwick line. Everyone at Warwick was always like, oh, I'd never live in Coventry. I'm like, well, you did in first year because the campus is in Coventry. And like, <laughs> oh, but look at the crime statistics. And it's like, well, have you looked at the crime statistics? Because I think you'll find. And actually, South Leamington has a higher instance of violent crime well, um, well, than Elston. It's a very weird that's, place. That's a side. Well, it's a very weird I've place. I've already got Leamington. into enough trouble for dissing Coventry from my friend in Coventry. If I, don't, if I start <laughs> slag, slagging off Leamington oh, Spa, see, I, I, I would not up. diss Coventry. I loved living in okay, Coventry. Okay, good. He'll be pleased. Yeah, <laughs> I really liked it. It's a proper, it's a proper city with proper stuff going on, not just student stuff. But I think, I mean, a lot of it's circumstantial. The main year I lived in Coventry when I wasn't in halls, which is obviously a different thing, was my MA year. So I was doing an MA in creative writing. I was living with three really close friends. I just found this thing that I was good at, and I uh, everything was great. So I was, I was always going to like it because it was yeah. such a happy time. Yeah. 
anyway um i was always going to like it but having said that i still i still stand by well when i went back to coventry to see my friend and to record a conversation with like him and to, to go back to the city i you know had to reassess my my childhood memories of it i mean if you experience a place when i mean it was a hard time for the family there were mm. bad times at home and that colored my view of the of the city i think yeah and also my dad did live in such a i mean he lived in a pretty bleak kind of i called it a tower block but my my friends taking me to task for that because apparently it wasn't enough stories to have a tower, be a tower block but it was a really one of those horrible, it was a horrible stone flat block. building where there was rottweilers barking outside oh all the God. time and they were always smashing the windows and stuff like this so where he lived was pretty bleak and where i lived was bleak because of the environment in the home yeah so kind of my dad's house was wonderful inside the house but outside the house bleak but my own house was bleak inside the house i'm not sure if it was wonderful outside or not really it yeah was a bit hard to say but i mean that colored my view of it i think so i was it's nice to hear that somebody yeah. had a good experience with it i think I mean, it was it was a, tatty it's an interesting it city because it was just ripped apart yes know? as was hull actually i found it really i found it so interesting moving because beverly is near hull and hull was bombed very heavily of course Coventry was so I found it really interesting always living in a place like that and then moving to Oxford which I don't know if this is legend or what but allegedly Oxford was never touched by bombs in World War Two because Hitler wanted to move in basically <laughs> and make it like his base I wouldn't operations be surprised. in the UK I wouldn't be surprised it's a walking Hitlerish through, thing to do isn't it yeah, like walking look at these pretty buildings everything's very pretty and Hitler did like pretty he liked pretty and he, he liked, and he liked pretty, kind but... of history probably probably wasn't like these buildings are well pretty yeah. Um, look at the Radcliffe camera that's going to yeah. be my bedroom but I bet he thought it um, oh, yeah, yeah. but moving somewhere that's so kind of eye-bleedingly beautiful it's very odd when we walked around Coventry because I, I sort of did a, a getting better acquainted with Coventry sort of special we started in the old cathedral we went mm. to the new cathedral those are the I mean I love those buildings anyway mm. they, what they've done with the old cathedral is beautiful yeah and, and in comparison to the new cathedral as well it's mm. just I mean it, it's like an architectural poem like it mm. kind of covers every, so much sort of is summed up by those two buildings their close proximity my my brother actually when he because when we lived in Coventry he's, he's six years older than me mm. he was doing RA level I think it was A level maybe GCSE but he painted this painting of the old and the new cathedral kind of mixed together and the devils in the sky um, oh, in kind of cool. blue colours and uh, Jesus is in the is in red colours in the in the ground and it's the, the Jesus and the devil are both from the new cathedral but the background is the old cathedral and it's just that picture is kind of summed up a lot of the experience I think of going to those cathedrals yeah. but when we were walking from the old cathedral and the new cathedral back into town there's like one street which is pretty and cobbled yes and like medieval spawn yeah, street and like oxford <laughs> like oxford yeah you, you it's a wicked curry house on that street yeah. by the way turmeric gold listeners well, at home that street isn't unlike oxford and when i was walking through oxford today oxford's not unlike york i mean it's, it's yes. one of the nice pretty cities yes oxford um, is like york yeah. a lot i and always thought that little kind of street in in Coventry sort of made me think hang on maybe you know before this these bombs happened like before. yeah exactly yeah and i mean there are little there are little charming pockets of hull like that as well as one street in hull called the land of green ginger which has the smallest window 
in Europe or some, something. Maybe the world. I'm not sure. I was That's 16. Nice, I love that name. Uh, the land of green ginger. I know we were obsessed with it when we were teenagers, when we used to go, go and hang out in Queen's Gardens together and take the occasional occasional jaunt um, <laughs> to the land of green ginger and then back again because actually it was just a window and that was kind of it. That wasn't so you like, just went looked at the window? Looked at the window. It had a tiny Spider-Man in it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Time, time for exciting as a teenager sounds, in Hull. Yeah, sounds, it sounds like you had a, yeah. Yeah, between that and putting vibrant. on eyeliner, it was a full, full life. <laughs> it was a mosher when I was 16. Well, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It was the, it's the best choice. Yeah, more fun than goths, better music than townies. This was really clear on why I made my decision. I mean, I guess, because oh, I'm like about, I'm four years older than you, so it, there's a slight difference, I guess, but not much. I never really fitted into any of the groups, mm. but the moshers were the ones I, hippie chicks, mm. they, they the moshers and the hippie chicks so were if the I, ones if I, I picked with a clear sight it would have been a more hippie thing but obviously I was being facetious about the whole chose to be a mosher thing um you just do what your friends you don't do you? yeah exactly I didn't have any friends so I, <laughs> I, I wasn't in any group it was See, uh, me an and my me and all uh, my tactic. geek friends discovered drinking yeah. basically well, and boys well, my it girlfriend was, eight, was a, best summer ever well my girlfriend was a goth back in the day I mean you know you just you just she still has a affection for the style but she doesn't I, I have, I have an affection. I have I have an affection for some of the music, even the really, really lame stuff. I, I can't think of it without a little smile. Yeah, exactly. She was a blonde yeah. goth, you see, and that, that, oh, must, have been, that, that is, must have been that's pretty a cool. trial. Like, she was... No, well, I think it was cool. Like, apparently, oh, she really? that, like, she was the blonde goth. Oh, I see. Like, she made that the decision. The blonde goth. You know, everybody else dyed their hair, but she was in the goth club with the blonde hair. You know? Nice. That's there a, is a nice a strategy. wicked goth club in Hull. Incidentally, <laughs> um, I have to I have to say this it, because I still can't believe it's real. I had to stop going because it's basically a youth club. Plus, you know, like you move away, and I love my friends back home a lot, but I'm connected to them now rather than the whole social scene. Yeah. So there are friends that I, you know, I go back and see, and I love love seeing, but it's not it's not the same. Like I can't sort of go out in the same way because I feel like that's an element of it that's not my world anymore. I wouldn't say that Beverly isn't kind of still my territory, but that's an element of it that isn't because it has been so long. But spiders in Hull, when I was 16 and they let me in when I was 16, I think I went for the first time when I was 15 actually. Yeah, I was um, probably at 15. Yeah, um, actually really sweetly, um, my parents did let used to let me go, but they insisted on picking me up in the car at 1am. That is sweet. That and is nice and reasonable brilliant. and sensible actually. And so, so useful because then when I went to university, I was never the one collapsed in a puddle of sick on the middle of the dance floor because I kind of I knew you know I kind of knew how to do it yeah. whereas you get to uni and there are people who obviously whose parents are like yes you can drink when you're 18 and they just get so messed up yeah. and you're just like oh god you know <laughs> but I think that was a really that was a great decision and it also meant that I could go and have fun but no obviously that I had to be sort of in a state to carry on a conversation mm. like I was I could have a couple of drinks but I couldn't have a bottle of vodka because <laughs> I had to talk to my dad about how my night had gone yeah. in a reasonably sensible manner yeah. you know in three hours time so that was great but that was an act of willpower because they sold shots of vodka for 60p wow which is amazing wow. absolutely incredible that's crazy yeah it's complete crazy talk wow yeah Good time. <laughs> Good time. The last question I have about the kind of geographical location thing mm. is you don't have a particularly Yorkshire accent. No. 
I don't. My girlfriend doesn't either. My good friend Zoe's got one of the poshest voices I know, and she's from Harrogate, which I guess yeah, explains is quite it. Posh. <laughs> but also, is, it is the north. I mean, what I always used to say when people asked me why I talked quite posh was I'd be like, oh, well, Dad works for BBC, and you know, I used to, I'd, you know, I picked up his voice. It's a kind of jazz um, DJ, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, no, he is. I mean, different types of music. He used to just do folk, then a lot of blues stuff, swing, kind of old school rock and roll. My favourite ever name for one of his shows was The Roots and Branches of Rock and Roll, which I think is a wicked idea. But at the moment, he's doing a show called Henry Ayrton's Jukebox. But if you're on iPlayer and type in Henry Ayrton, A Y R T O N, um, then you can listen to his latest show online right now. They're very very good. Anyway. But your surname's quite a Yorkshire name as well. I think it's actually. from a village in Lancashire. I know it's a crime. Oh, I know, I know, but I'm just saying that <laughs> I don't mean I get confused between the locations, but the, oh, the right. there are similar kind of linguistical names in there different are, areas. There are there are similar Let's there are similar flavours, I think, certainly to the sounds of the areas. But I don't think that's true anymore because actually Dad's voice, while quite RP, is very, very definitely northern RP. A miner's in the vowels. I just think I soak things up too much. I think I, I went to Warwick and I got levelled. I don't have a accent from any geographical yeah. location because I've lived in pretty much yeah. every part of the country. See, I always um, lived in Yorkshire, but I'm, I'm a mimic. But then when I was when I was growing up in Yorkshire, I didn't speak like this. It was a more northern version, but it was a lot, lot posher than everyone else for not really any particular reason. I, I used Were you to from I a used to get family? teased. Not really. Not really. Uh, probably a little bit more bohemian but they weren't really i used to get teased for being posh from a girl who had a pony which i always thought was a profound unfairness <laughs> of school yeah. <laughs> like, Sounds unfair to if me. i'm gonna if i'm gonna get picked on for being yep. posh where's my pony yeah. uh, you know not really i was possibly i was possibly exposed to different media i can't remember a time when i didn't have a pretty constant funny, of radio Four. when you go back home and you talk to your friends does your accent change little bit little mine slip. does a bit when i go back to cardiff and mm. when i talk to people from cardiff it does go back a little bit but it never gets yeah. as good as it was I wish I had yeah. my Cardiff accent back my ex is from Wales and it was really distinct I could tell when he'd like spoken to his mum on the phone there was like a slip but I yeah I don't do that with friends and parents but I do I start kind of I don't know I kind of get a little bit more immersed in it and I probably do sound slightly more Yorkshire but no it's not I think I think because I've always, I've never been very, very Yorkshire-y. But it was weird moving to uni because I went from being teased for being very, very posh to being teased. Basically, I mean, everyone was a bit too nice and middle class to actually say this, but basically being teased for being common. Um, (laughs) And that was quite an interesting process. And also, I used to be one of the very, very clever ones. And I'd always get teased for being a slut and stuff. Moved to university and in a fairly classic big fish, small pond, outed scenario, realised actually it turns out um, not really that clever in the scheme of things at all. Yeah, I Um, had a similar kind of experience to do with like being the most, like one of the creative people in the school and then suddenly I'm doing creative writing and I'm studying theatre so everybody's doing the same thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And all these things that I've kind of used as keystones of my identity, it turns (laughs) out it's the opposite. And from being like this posh overachiever, I suddenly become this like slacker from Hull. 
I was like, oh, what's happened? But I think it was the best thing that could have happened to me. I was really glad that I didn't. I, was, I applied to Cambridge, but I withdrew partway through the application process because it was awful. I nearly applied to Oxford, but I decided not to. I think I probably would have gone to Oxford. I think Oxford I would have had less of a problem. I, th I think I just chose the wrong college. I chose a college that still had a midnight curfew, the most kind of traditional straight-laced, tight-assed one. And it was just completely inappropriate, but a little girl from the north, you, you know, I didn't know anyone who'd been to Oxford or Cambridge. I had absolutely no idea how it worked. I don't... My teachers didn't really... You know, they couldn't really help. There wasn't any... There wasn't any support. I didn't know that choosing college was that significant. Had I known, had I had all that information, maybe it would have gone differently, but I'm very yeah. glad it didn't because I think that I really, really needed that and I really, really needed for it to be okay to be in an environment where it's like, okay, maybe you're not going to get a first, that's all right. What are you going to, like, what are you going to do instead? So, you know, I'm like, maybe I'm, you know, I'm going to direct some plays. Yeah. And, and that was brilliant. That was the best thing that could have happened. Absolutely. And that sort of, brings us to the other sort of element of you which you, we, you touched on at the beginning mm. but we haven't gone back to yet which is that you you're a writer and yeah. I'm a writer too so uh, it's always nice to speak to a writer yeah. we're um, doing the secret handshake right now that you too, can't see yeah there's too many of us about mind you um, but, yeah, <laughs> you're a poet mostly is that right or well really really interesting question well poetry thing was a little bit of an accident when I I did. I always used to write fiction. When I did my MA, I was quite clear that I wanted to write fiction. Mm -hmm. And for the last year, I've been kind of predominantly working on a novel. But poetry is much more immediate. I write a poem in an afternoon and perform it that evening. Get feedback. You know, you can win a slam and suddenly, you know, you're off. Um, you do that quite a lot, don't you, slams? I do. I mean, actually, I um, I don't compete in slams quite so much anymore because I've taken over the kind of hosting and organising for the Oxford chapter of Hammer and Tongue along with Tina Sederholm. Um, we took that over in September so that Steve could focus on running it as a national collective. So it looks kind of a little bit me... unseemly for you to be entering into the competition. <laughs> yeah. If you if well, you win yeah. them, it looks like favouritism. Yeah, and if, and if I didn't win them, it's like, completely well, embarrassing who, and I wouldn't. <laughs> are wicked like yeah. there's no way I would have beaten the people who've won the most recent slams and that would have been very embarrassing because then it would have been like I cheated and I still didn't win <laughs> having said that I am competing in our national final which is on the 31st of March but I do compete in slams sometimes and I kind of like to because it's such instant feedback and it takes a big leap of bravery because it's so very very frightening and I quite like to do that to myself sometimes I'm never going to jump out of a plane so I like to do that okay so you're running hammer and tongue tongue yes um <laughs> a victim of the pun there i got it got, oh, yes for the, for the, uh, our, our dj um, always pronounces it ton like no hannah tongue and she's like what <laughs> yeah now she calls it tongue eh which i find really amazing yes and that's and that's a, a, a slam poetry yeah so it's a monthly slam slash spoken word night we always have a headline act we normally have someone epically wicked like recently we had kate tempest who's awesome who's in sound of rum as well and disraeli who also does Disraeli. And yeah, I really cards. enjoyed your. Uh, you posted a Disraeli uh, video, and I really enjoyed the song. Tried to book him for my night actually, but he's unavailable at the moment. But maybe one day. Yeah, he's probably really busy because everyone wants to book him because he's amazing. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've got no money to pay. Oh right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we normally have someone massively badass like that and a support act who actually we've been so 
been so so lucky with people who are like so generous with their time it's been really inspiring so we'll also have a brilliant support act then we'll have a slam for eight people in the middle which I really enjoyed doing so that's the first thing I really did for me when I moved to Oxford was do some poetry slam it was kind of how I sort of plugged myself in to a kind of creative community yeah. I found it really really welcoming I made a lot of friends and it kind of helped me get a bit of a sense of me back after having stopped being a student and going to work for a soulless corporation I was kind of like oh god what do I do and what what, what made you what made you do that first performance poem I mean. oh well what made me do the first performance poem was when I was doing my MA of, like I self-funded my MA so I was looking for literally every little scrap of education that I could hoover out of them I was there so I audited every course and there was this um, kind of not for credit course called the Apprentice for Artists which was run by Peter Blegvad um, and Adriano Chaplin who are oh from uh, who did the riot group is that yes, right yes. Uh, I saw him in Edinburgh he really inspired me when I was he, oh wow this is ace. crazy I saw him oh god when I was like 20 years old, they were doing this show called Victory at the Dirt Palace. It was amazing. I did part of my dissertation on uh, Victory at the Dirt Palace. He sent me that play. Well, it's, it's, all, it's all on him and Peter that I even started doing Slam because they had this amazing idea. They're like, well, This was when like the Apprentice TV series was still quite new. And they're like, oh, that's funny. But, and also I think they were like, you know, what what does it mean? Why is the creative writing course, you know, it's quite limited. And particularly Peter, he's a musician and a cartoonist as well. So it's kind of silly for him just to teach poetry, you know. They came up with this kind of workshop group thing. And every week we just try a different form of art. So one week we do radio plays, we did visual art. We even tried to like interpret each other's dreams and stuff all these different kinds of things and one week it was slam poetry i think it was adriano that did that one i think um he just sat us down and queued up a load of youtubes and he's like right listen and he pulled up adrian mitchell doing tell yeah. me lies about vietnam oh wow who i subsequently found out was my dad's tutor at lancaster <laughs> uni so jealous that's a great poem as well it is a wonderful wonderful poem yeah. and it really blew me away I was some of his stuff's really amazing jaw dropped all, all of the Mersey poets like, yeah. like, this wouldn't be my criticism of performance poetry exactly it's kind of my acknowledgement of performance poetry I think those Mersey poets kind of sum it up in sometimes they're really deep and powerful and just knock you out and other times they're just a bit silly and funny yeah and that's kind of the experience of going to see yeah. performance poetry you get like wow and then you get like that's yeah. a bit silly and funny I think it now, has to be if you're doing more than a 20 minute set you can't always well I think that's that's intelligent it it shows an appreciation of, the, of what the audience want and, and it's very true you know but me personally I can't relate so much to the silly and funny. Oh, okay. But that's a flaw in me and not in, <laughs> not in, and not in the poets, I think. I've come to the conclusion over time that, you know, I'm just the kid that always wants to be serious, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the brilliant thing about Slam is it can be all these things. So he got like this, he got this class load of us. We were all, you know, kids, really. And he was like, right, so you've seen it. Next week, write three poems. We're running a Slam. I'm bringing beer. Go. It's like, <laughs> whoa, what? But I had to then. I couldn't, you know, couldn't lose face and not turn up. So I wrote my first three slam poems and screwed up my courage and entered. Were you successful the first time? Did people like it or did you Yeah, bomb? one. See, that's the thing. People say this about stand-up comedians a lot because I listen to a lot of stand-up comedians podcasts yeah. and, they, and it's like, if you, if the first time you go up, you do well, 
then you've got it forever. Yeah, I think that was a massive element of it because my first taste of it was a taste of what it's like to win a slam. And if I think my first taste had been what it was... If you'd have bombed, you probably wouldn't have. If I'd have bombed, I'd probably never have gone back to it. And I mean, we did stand up in the same course. And while it was too nice an environment for me to say, you know, I bombed it, it didn't go as well. And I've never... It's never really occurred to me to do... Politely laughed. Very politely laughed. Polite laughter is quite a horrific idea. Yeah, really chilling. (laughs) Really, really (laughs) chilling sound. Keep meaning to email them. And say, like, thank you. I don't know what to say, but just it's become such a massive part of my life and such a part of my social life and the things that I do and the friends that I make and the things that I see. I just want, yeah, I, I keep meaning to send them an email saying, like, thanks for doing that. That was quite... And I actually bumped into a guy who was on that, in that same class. I was back, I was at the Edinburgh Festival last year and I was running a slam because now I do. And he came up to me and was like, do you remember I was in that, I was in that lesson? Wow! It's like wow, and then he com- and he competed, and he's, and he's it, still doing. He's wow. wicked. He went way over the time limit, but if he hadn't, I think he would have won. He was great. I was just like, oh, come on! <laughs> yeah, you, you can't really Brilliant. come back from going over the time yeah. limit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just the like kind it. of the kind of love that they put into that because they I, I would eat my face if they were paid to do that. They definitely weren't. They just did it because they thought it wanted doing. Right. Brilliant. Just and, absolutely brilliant. And so, and that's why you got into performance poetry yes. and slam poetry. You also write fiction, yeah. Mm. When did you start writing? It's a really interesting question because I started, then I stopped. I think a lot of people do because mm. I, having done a lot, quite a lot of conversations with writers, because a lot of my acquaintances are writers. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way that it does rolls. seem to be quite. A, I mean, in fact, just today, I had a conversation with another writer yeah. who started when they were little. And yeah. stopped and then took it up again yeah, later. Exactly. So, But it always goes hand in hand in music. It's like a dance. Um, when I do a lot of music, I'm not, when, when I wasn't writing during my teens, I was doing a lot of music. So you play the guitar, I guess, because yes, there's, there's a lot of the guitars gest- in your room. to the guitar. There's three um, guitars downstairs and there's one in your room. Yeah, I play, I play the guitar, but I always um, I sing. I used to, when I was 16, I used to go around the folk clubs in Yorkshire doing unaccompanied English folk song. Um, nice. Yeah, which I loved. And then I got to uni and I got a bit more into writing. But I, what I, I, I now I write my own stuff and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get back in. I've started doing open mic nights and stuff again. What for the music? It's wonderful. And I'm in, integrating music into the show. Well, um, poetry is that. a. I mean, I began writing poetry. Yeah. Now I would say I'm a lyricist. Mm. Like I, I. I I don't write, I rarely write what I would call a poem, which I think has a different function and a different way of existing to a lyric. Now, I do occasionally, normally when something big is going on, Mm. you know, because sometimes you just need to sit down and... Unpick. Yeah. But, you know, normally if I write something now, it's normally with the idea that it will become a, a song. Mm. If it's not prose, which is what I'm majority right now, yeah. or prose or plays, but See, yeah. I um, I, I think I at the moment what I most tend to write is performance poetry. It doesn't tend to work nearly as well on the page. It's not lyrics either, but I think it has a lot in common with the unaccompanied folk that I used to do in terms of the kind of meter, the emphasis on story. Always make me do story poems, and they they remind me more on the way I perform them reminds me more of folk song 
than kind of anything else mm. and the themes that come up in I think fairy tales and folk song and you're writing a um, and you're writing an Edinburgh show now yes. aren't you? and is that about fairy tales yes it's about fairy tales and feminism it's the story of fairy stories so I've been doing a lot of research and some really interesting stuff has kind of come out and occurred to me because we think about fairy tales now and we get this really I mean, we, we get Disney I've, I've actually got a, quite an interest in fairy tales and I've read read, 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 read up about Shut it like the original books. Brothers Grimm stuff is brutal people do not understand it. how brutal it is it's so brutal and they changed it between first version and fourth my favourite example of this Sleeping Beauty so if you just pin in your head the romantic idea of Sleeping Beauty and she pricks her finger and Prince comes and fights her and rescues her and kisses her and saves her and they all live happily ever after in the very first version that the Brothers Grimm wrote down of that tale she didn't wake up when he kissed her. She woke up nine months later. That's a different story. That's a really different it's a story. a really different story. That is. Well, that, I, did, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Because I wrote a play called The Real Cinderella. It was based mm. on Cinderella. Because the original story is Ash and Puttle. And yeah. There's not a fairy godmother. It's a dead mother. It's a tree that was... A, a tree, a tree that's possessed by the by spirit the dead of mother. the dead mother. And uh, the, the ugly sister's cut their think their feet off yeah. they cut their toes off and there's and the reason that they, the prince knows they're not Cinderella is because they can see, you can see a trail of blood behind the carriage that's amazing yeah but I mean and, and I was fascinated by it because I was reading Japanese folk tales mm-hmm. and actually there's a there's kind of there's a there's a wicked stepmother Japanese fairy actually, tales and I was really interested in the co- crossover one of the most interesting things that the brothers Grimm did is they created that trope of the wicked stepmother because in the original tales that they collected they weren't stepmothers they were mothers uh, which is more frightening much more frightening what the mother is the mother yeah definitely hurting you like that yeah that is definitely it changes from the sense of be afraid of the other to be afraid of the be afraid of what's here right now yeah um, which is terrifying but it's so it's so interesting but really in the scheme of things the printing press is such a recent invention and that's what led us to writing stories down to collecting them, to pinning them in place, changing to, them from the oral tradition yeah, to the yeah written to tradition. modifying them, and they used to be they used to be used by women as part of childcare, and they used to be for comfort, for entertainment, and as warnings. And these are warnings that we needed. You know, we need the warning of what do you what do you do, what do you do if the one person, you know, this is why the mother's quite significant. What do you do if the one person that you trust the most suddenly turns against you? How are you going to survive? Mm. And they emphasise traits like cleverness and trickery and sometimes just running away. And firstly through people like the Brothers Grimm who wrote them down and more latterly people like Disney, this trope of absolute passivity has been put upon and this is so opposite to what they were intended. They, fairy tales were never intended to tell little girls to sit quiet and shut up. They were told to help them learn how to scream and run. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to talk about because I think that we need these I think we need these tales I mean the things that little girls have to be frightened of aren't wolves anymore but there there are still metaphor wolves they're yeah. not real anymore but there are metaphor wolves again while I was researching it I was trying to find a really really good gender difference to kind of demonstrate how damaging this is and the one I found was men are four times more likely to ask for a pay rise than women Right. Four times. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, because we're taught to be passive. And I was like, oh my God, this is so... uh," And I was like, okay, Lucy, have you ever asked for a pay rise? No, I haven't. 
Not even once when I seriously, genuinely thought I was being significantly underpaid. Still didn't ask. Yeah, I wouldn't ask for a pay rise, but I'm not a particularly masculine man. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like to think of myself as super ballsy, but I, I still didn't. I still didn't do yeah. it. I was in a situation, not a lovely charity. I was in a different situation where I definitely should have asked for a pay rise. Didn't do it. Certainly, I think. My experience is women are probably more likely to do unpaid work as well, mm. do extra mm. work, do extra hours, and to, to do things because it's the right thing to do. Yes. Uh, and who says it's the right thing to do? Society does, not exactly, not, you know. exactly. And I think it is, I think it is significant, and I think it it stands unpicking because if you look at little boys in fairy tales and you know the modern Disneyfication, the perils that are put in their way are real perils. They're like dragons, actual perils, and that sends a clear message that's like sometimes something scary will happen in life and that's true we need to prepare children for this but if you're brave enough and clever enough and quick enough you can win stand up to the dragon hold your sword out you know go for it but when it happens to trust yourself when it happens women aren't even well exactly and also the perils that face women are ridiculous like a spindle or an apple so like you can't live your life afraid of household objects that's ridiculous I mean there's the wolf there is the wolf Oh, there is the wolf. And there's a tower. I mean, there's a witch. There's the, there's the whole kind of that witches. thing. There are always other women, though. There are always those, like, family of, relationships. What do you think of Hans Christian Andersen? Oh, I love him, I but his gender politics... No, I'm, writing, I'm writing a story. So I'm writing a short story about sexuality and gender with a kind of retelling of The Little Mermaid. Because I'm the working, Little Mermaid is I'm working on a retelling on, of on, The Little Mermaid. Yeah. The Little Mermaid is completely mental. Yeah. Um... But I think that there's... She gets to be, a, like, at the end, she's just like... she's God, a the spirit, spirit of, of, the the air. Wind, of the wind. Yeah, the air. Ridiculous. Oh, and <laughs> if, if she sees a little girl, a little girl or boy crying... She comes in, she doesn't gets, she? There's a brilliant quote, no, actually. If, they, the, if they're nice, if they're well If they're if nice, they're well she gets behaved, time off for, good, gets, for their yeah, good behaviour right. and if they're naughty. But what's brilliant is um, one a kind of scholar of the day actually wrote him a letter saying, like... A, because that was his second version. Oh, right, OK. In the first version none of that bullshit and they, he actually wrote him a letter being like oh hands um a year extra on her penance if he finds a child crying this is blackmail hands pure and simple and the children with their good hearts say nothing i was just like yeah that's right you stand up for the that's children good. um it's really good but he was called on it at the time some the you know the, the literary community were like that is really out of order yeah. stop it and it is out of order i have a few hans christian anderson's in my show i do a bit about the snow queen which is about stories being kind of bodorized and cut about because no one ever really tells the part where you find out why the Snow Queen's like yeah. she is because she's been abused in the past and this sprite has got her, which I think is really interesting. But I do this one called The Shepherd in the Chimney Sweep, which is one of his stories that I worked into a poem, which is, it's about two little China figures and one of them's a girl and one of them's a boy and the boy wants to go out exciting, adventuring. And he's like, come on, shepherdess, let's go. Um, and she's like, oh, okay. Even though she doesn't really want to because she loves him. And um, basically they get kind of partway out of the chimney and she just freaks out. And she's like, no, 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 I can't do it. And she starts crying. And the chimney sweep just kind of looks at her and he loves her so much. So he takes her home. And the last line, which I robbed off hands, I didn't write, is they'll love each other until they break. And I wrote it at the time because I found it so heartbreaking and beautiful, but 
then I got a little bit older and more angry. And now I do it as an example of what we, again, what we tell little girls about, though, what their role, because that's bullshit. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Sh- it's, it's nice as a, like, country lyric. <laughs> but the yeah. whole point of country lyrics is that it's not necessarily a desirable Yeah, uh, It's just outcome. this idea of this little, you know, of the female trait being to want to stay at home, even when home has been clearly demonstrated as profoundly boring and rubbish, and to want to take that over. It's super nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hans Christian Andersen is a genius, but I resist his. This is the thing. His I, gender, I, but that's okay. I think well, they're, well, they're they're products of their time. They're products of their moment. I think fairy tales are incredibly evocative. It sounds mm. like you're doing the kind of thing that I like to do with them, really, which is uh, rip them apart for their gender politics, but make use of the evocativeness of them. You know, you yeah, kind of have our cake and eat it. You know? Yes, yeah, why not? Eh? <laughs> there are such beautiful moments, and also the kind of the kernel of them. I mean, they're, they're, fairy tales are about the things that we find most interesting. They're about, you know, they're about adventure and danger and sex and death. Yeah, sex and, and death. Family. Yeah. And family. And family yeah, is family. left out of the sex and death kind of trope of the most interesting things but families are really everyone everyone's interested in family as well and a how-to guide of family relations is a useful thing to have well that's really interesting the last question i ask kind of feeds very well into what we've just been talking about which is do you have anything to plug okay my edinburgh show it's called lullabies to make your children cry and it will be performed at the banshee labyrinth between the 4th and 14th of August at Edinburgh at 20 past 6 every day. And if you come, stay around for the slam. I'm running directly afterwards, 7.20. Um, and if you're in Edinburgh, come with your poem or very, very short bit of stand-up and perform. Uh, but please, yeah, come along. It's actually a free show. Well, that Donations sounds great. Only. Oh, it's part of the Free Fringe. Um, yes, part, the, part of the PBH of the P- Free Fringe. PBH free. PBH Free Fringe is awesome. This will be my third year there, but my first year doing a solo show, and they are—they have a consistently wicked program. So actually, check out everyone else. I used to go to Edinburgh all the time, and I loved it. And then I went to Edinburgh once, and I had no money, and it was a brutal experience. And then a couple of years after, they started doing the Free Fringe, and that would have been perfect for me then because the excitement of the festival is so wonderful. But if you don't have the money to get into the shows, then absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Sorry, you were right. Bye. 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 Just Bye. like two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my, my dinner dates are arriving. I'm making vegetarian sushi. Oh, lovely. And that, that's... <laughs> that's, I, that, I, that's don't, a, that's I don't a, wish to plug that. That's a great place to... to, to, to <laughs> with this natural interruption, we'll bring this to a close. <laughs> so I will put this out like a couple of weeks before the festival. Wicked. And Absolutely everyone should go and see because that sounded like an excellent show. I don't know why. I'm, now I'm looking at the microphone and gesturing like. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I normally idea. forget that the microphone's there as well, but I think I guess we started off talking about the microphone. Yep, so so here we uh, end. I'm gonna do an audible wave. Bye bye now. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> bye guys. Bye. I went to see the Edinburgh preview of Lucy's show, and. I was really, really impressed by it. I mean, obviously, as you could hear from our conversation, I'm really into fairy tales, but I'm also into really good theatre and really good words and really well-constructed shows. And her show is all of those things. Not only has it got a brilliant title, it's got brilliant content as well. And what I saw was just a preview, so I'm sure that the finished show at Edinburgh is going to be even better. So get yourself along, seriously. I endorse the show wholeheartedly. 
and I'm actually I'm gutted because I'm going up to Edinburgh and her show clashes with my show. I'm telling a true story at Spark London at Riddles Court on the 4th of August and that starts at 5.30. If you're only there for the 4th then you have to choose between seeing her or seeing me and so that's up to you but if you're there on the 4th and on other days afterwards then I really suggest coming to see me and then going to see her the next day. Go along to her show and hear her tell her fairy stories without me interrupting for a full hour. It's going to be really great. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.